Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 25 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the new show that I recently launched in addition to the Datascape podcast. It's called the Cloudscape Podcast. It's a monthly news style show where we diffuse the most important announcements, releases, and updates to the public cloud vendors. I also want to recognize the community contributions made by Robert Davis, also known as SQL Soldier. Robert was a prominent contributor in the SQL Server community, and he passed away rather unexpectedly last week. Our condolences go out to his wife and his family. He and his contributions will be missed. Now let's get started with the show. Platform or database as a service offerings are not new to the cloud world. In fact, Azure SQL DB was released back in 2010 and RDS for SQL by Amazon was released in about 2009. This technology continues to improve at a rapid pace. Azure SQL DB is an interesting te- is a very interesting technology and given there were some recent significant improvements I thought that it was time to delve a little bit deeper into this world. So I've invited Warner Chavez back to the show to discuss them with us. Hey, Warner, how's it going? Hey, Chris, how's it going? Glad to be back into the Datascape. Well, we're glad to have you. Folks, Warner is a regular on the Datascape, so we won't be doing the intro or the uh, lightning round with him. You can find him first appearing on episode number one. All right, Warner, let's talk a little bit about platform as a service in general before we delve right in. So why don't you describe in your mind what the platform as a service value proposition is? Sure. So for for people that are not familiar, we talk about platform as a service when the cloud provider offers a service where you don't really have to deal with operating system or below, right? So obviously when we're talking about infrastructure as a service, you're not dealing with, say, the actual hardware and you're not dealing with, say, hypervisors, but you are still dealing with the operating system, even for things that might not be what you want the particular virtual machine for. Right. In the case of SQL Server, you would still be responsible for Windows, Windows patching, the networking setup of that particular VM and so on. And then in platform as a service, you really are just responsible for the actual purpose of the service itself. Right. So we have things like Azure SQL DB, which is database as a service, where you literally just get database services, either a database, an instance, a group of databases and other other similar concepts of platform as a service. For example, in terms of compute, we can think of things like Azure Functions, where literally you just do on-demand compute based on events and so on, and you don't really worry about where these actual functions are running in, right? The big value prop for past services as opposed to infrastructure is that you don't have to take your time or your staff to worry about maintaining operating systems, antiviruses, updates, patches, and so on. You just have to have your staff worry about what they actually need to get your applications up and running, right? And also, it can get your application up and running usually a lot faster because, again, we're cutting out that part where you have to be responsible for the operating system and below. Okay. And so Azure SQL DB, that's what we're going to be speaking about mostly today. Is it database as a service? And how does that fit into platform as a service? So 
Azure SQL DB is database as a service for sure, as and similar to other services that you mentioned in some competitors, like Amazon RDS has a an Amazon RDS for SQL Server, which is another type of database as a service offering. I consider database as a service as a subset of platform as a service. So, for example, in the in the uh, I just mentioned Azure SQL Functions, right? Azure Functions. So Azure Functions to me is, is serverless computing. We could call it compute as a service, right? Instead of just having just virtual machines to do your compute. So these, let's say compute as a service, database as a service, anything really like that, I would put it as subsets of the general platform as a service concept, right? Azure SQL DB now, you know, we're going to go into detail further on on today's podcast, but really it's turning into not just database as a service, but also now into instance, database instance as a service as well. Okay, good. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what Azure SQL DB is? So Azure SQL DB is basically a SQL Server, I want to say a cloud-first fork of SQL Server. And, and by that, I'll go into a little bit of detail. So obviously, my, it's Microsoft's database as a service offering. So they built off of the code of SQL Server. It's not exactly SQL Server, though, because once it's in the cloud, Microsoft really moves a lot quicker and does constantly building and releases in the cloud, right? So where a SQL Server is a retail product where we go out and we buy a, you know, let's say in October, the new version comes out, you buy that new version, and that is the product that you have, and then you choose whether you want to apply the patches or not. In the cloud, Microsoft is continuously building and releasing and putting out new features, right? So it is born out of SQL Server, but it is a cloud-first fork, right? So things that show up on Azure SQL database are kind of like previews of what we're going to see in the retail product of SQL Server. And Microsoft, like you just mentioned, man, it's eight years. That's a long time since the service has been out. So they have learned a lot of things. It, it kind of produces an interesting feedback cycle for Microsoft in terms of development because they discover a lot of things by running in the cloud first that then they build into the actual retail product for people that just want to run the you know, but people call the the box, the out of box uh, software, right? Just the regular retail SQL server. Okay. And so at least when it first came out, was Azure SQL DB basically them just provisioning you a database on a great big instance of SQL server running under the hood, under the covers? Yeah, the, it's crazy. The service, I mean, eight years is a long time in IT, obviously, and the service has had a ginormous evolution. And we're going to go into detail later on for sure into, into some of these, especially some of the latest stuff. But when the service came out, it was only limited or you can only buy it based on size of the database, which is kind of crazy if you think about it now, because I mean, how about the performance characteristics of the database? Would you buy a database off of somebody? They told you, hey, it's going to be this size, but I give you no assurances in terms of performance. You'd be like, oh, I don't know if I want to trust that, right? But that's right. exactly how the service was at the beginning. It was a basic tier. I, I think it was called web or something like that, that had a small size and then a bigger size that was called business. And after a few years, obviously, they saw what uh, how Amazon from the very beginning gave people the ability to pick cores and RAM and tip in type, different type of storage. They didn't want to go that way. So they introduced this concept of performance units. And they said, well, it's gonna, the, the service is going to evolve. We're going to just move away from just storage because really that is not scalable for Microsoft either, right? To just have, oh, we give you 
uh, storage, but we make no promises on performance. That's a customer service disaster waiting to happen. So they introduced the level, the concept of DTUs, these database transaction units. At that point, that's when they introduced, you know, the fact that you could buy performance attached to your database storage and that you could also scale it up, up or down. Then a few years later, they took that concept and they released the concept of database pools. So you could share those resources amongst multiple databases. And now this year, which is we'll go into detail a bit later, this year they're doing the public preview of the managed instance where you not only have those resources, not only do you have groups of databases, but they're really enabling a very uh, low friction migration from running on-prem SQL as an instance into running Azure SQL DB as an instance too. And in this scenario, the databases are all allowed to talk to each other. There's uh, more features that are enabled and so on, right? So the service went from being just storage to pretty much now uh, later on this year, GA is going to offer full-blown instances with a very high compatibility to on-prem SQL. Okay. So if I was starting out with a new application, I, you know, I'm a web developer or maybe I'm a company bringing in an app, what does the decision matrix look like for me? Like, how do I decide if I should go on-prem? Like, let's ignore the company's policy for a second, uh, which might dictate this. But if I'm just starting out, how do I decide if Azure SQL DB is for me? So that's a really good question. So there's still a little bit of features that managed instance is not going to cover. Let's say, for example, if you are building some sort of distributed architecture where you're going to have multiple SQL servers talking to each other. Now, while most people try to avoid that type of architecture, if you indeed that's what you already have or that's what you're planning to build and there's no way to change your mind, that would probably be easier to do on-prem than to do with Azure SQL DB, right? Because it's still... As a pass service, it's more contained to that point. So even managed instance, it's unclear at this point if it's going to allow, let's say, full distributed transactions across managed instances. I wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's not in the end. Obviously, you know, we're we have to ignore there if you do have like security or compliance requirements that say that you have to go to SQL Server on-prem when obviously, well, you can't choose Azure SQL DB, right? Because it's not the same. If you're okay with going to the cloud and really just want to make a choice between Azure SQL DB or even SQL Server running in the cloud, up until now, before Managed Instance was released, really that was the key decision was whether you are okay working with isolated databases that couldn't speak to each other. And if they could speak to each other, but it was cumbersome, especially to migrate or if you just wanted the full instance experience. Now with Azure SQL DB, managed instance coming out later this year, I think it's just going to boil down to those kind of like fringe features that are still not going to be 100% supported in managed instance, right? Because okay. to me, every anytime that you can leverage a path service, especially database as a service, without compromising on functionality, you probably want to do it. Right, because people, and a lot of times, uh, and we can talk a little bit more about cost comparison, but a lot of times people just take the cost of the service and then they compare it to their licensing cost. And then they say like, oh my God, but this is so expensive. And that's just, it's a very, very bad way to do a cost comparison, right? Because I mean, you and I know like the human factor is such a big driver of the cost of running on-prem services, right? 
Right. And, and it's not just the cost of our staff, but also the human factor when that staff is doing things that are related to managing the infrastructure, right? How many times, let's say, somebody's trying to do like a backup and then somebody's just trying to run a restore. And then because of, you know, some poor security practice, they accidentally restore over a production database, right? Like those things, they, they have a very heavy cost and pretty much you're protected for the most part, or it's really difficult to completely shoot your foot when you're running in, in let's say, Azure SQL DB. So there's a cost that I, I, a big cost that I think a lot of times people ignore when they're trying to compare and they think that they're really not saving that much with the past services. But most of the time they are once they factor in, you know, what you get, the high availability, the backups, the fact that you don't have to spend as much time on your own uh, system management and so on. Right. Okay. You mentioned uh, uh, managed instances in there as well. Can you just, um, let's just call out for the audience, the key differences between Azure SQL DB and Azure SQL managed instances. So the key difference is that Azure SQL DB came out, you know, when it came out, the model that Microsoft envisioned was a model where you would provision individual databases, right? You would provision individual databases, and these databases would be kind of security containers where, you know, it would be hard to cross the border of one database to go to another one. The fact that for example, some features like SQL CLR, they were enabled and then, you know, disabled down the line because they discovered some security concerns that crossed the database boundary, right? So everything in the service was built with the individual database being the, let's say, like the, the core database concept for most applications. Now, what Microsoft found down the line is that, A, on-prem people usually don't have one instance with one database. They have one instance with multiple databases. And B, that when people were building applications, a lot of the times they didn't use one database as the core storage for the application. They used two, three databases for some clients, you know, have a lot more than that even, which, you know, we can debate all day whether it's a good practice or not, but that was, that was the truth. Right. So managed instance basically comes in and says, it's okay. We're going to sell you the same Azure SQL DB offering, but we're going to remove that, you know, high level of containment between the databases. And you're going to get something way more similar to what you have on prem, right? You're going to be able to put all the databases inside one instance and they all are going to be able to talk to each other. And because they're all contained inside the instance, not inside the database, we're going to enable some of these other features that were disabled in the individual database model, right? Okay. Like SQL CLR, for example. So to put another way, Azure SQL DB is a single managed database, whereas uh, managed instances are a collection of managed databases that can easily speak and communicate. Yeah, that another. can easily interact because that's a key differentiation too. Because if we just said like, well, it's a collection of databases, well, then we already had the model of elastic pools, right? So managed instance is also sharing resources like elastic pool does. But on top of that, the databases themselves are all free to talk to each other. Plus the instance itself it doesn't have those feature limitations that had the individual database model, like, you know, like we mentioned just now, Okay. say the SQL CLR. So let's stick to Azure SQL DB for the moment. You mentioned limitations. What are some of the key limitations when comparing it 
to a on say an on-premise man, uh, instance that you manage outside of communication because you've already covered that well what are other like key limitations of the database well for example it's say if you want to do linked servers which again we can debate all day whether linked servers are good or bad but oh my god we have so many people that use linked servers all the time so you can link into an azure sql db if you need to pull data out of it but from azure sql db you can't link out to other machines, right? You can't link out to, let's say, an Oracle box or something like that. Right. So that's a limitation, right? Uh, SQL CLR is another one that's a limitation. You don't have SQL CLR in Azure SQL DB. If you need things, for example, like change data capture, that's also not in Azure SQL database. If you need anything related to, let's say, the SQL agent, the Azure SQL DB, because again, it's an individual database. It doesn't have a SQL agent. You need to provision that in some other way, right? And there are other ways to do that. But if you're just looking for like painless, frictionless migration, if you have a big state of jobs that obviously you don't want to have to reconfigure from scratch, well, Azure SQL DB is going to give you a hard time. Okay. But there are, just to confirm, there are other ways to schedule execution of code or jobs, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. But then, like I said, if you're looking for a painless or frictionless migration, it's, it's not going to be there. If we're looking... You know, you have like, two jobs, then, you know, switching from SQL agent to Azure automation is going to be trivial. But, I mean, we have we have clients that have thousands of jobs, right? It's, it's kind of crazy. And okay. to do that, you know, quickly and efficiently, it can be really hard if you don't have the SQL agent to just literally migrate your jobs over. Okay. And let's talk about the role of the DBA. And I know this is a, a topic you and I really enjoy uh, talking about. And we did with the first episode of this, this uh, podcast itself. And, and again, throughout where we covered automation. But let's talk a little bit about the role of the DBA in the DBAS or database as a surface world. Does this mean I could just migrate you know, all my databases onto this platform and just fire all my DBAs or cut my staff to a quarter? Like, what, what does the role look like? Well, I think I wouldn't say you should fire them all. And, and, you know, we've covered this extensively. So I think if people really want to get the long answer, they can just go check out episode number one. And my opinion really hasn't changed since then. But I would say, A, you're going to be able to drive more efficiency from your existing staff. So, you know, if you needed one guy to manage 30 instances, most likely that person will be able to manage 60 if they're Azure SQL managed instances. Because... At that point, they don't need to be monitoring DHA. They don't need to be monitoring the backups, right? And the backups do break. I mean, you don't even know. Microsoft fixes it under the covers. They have to respond to their SLA, right? Does that mean you get rid of some of the DBA staff? You might, right? I mean, it's, it's tough out there. I will say that some people might find themselves that their DBA team is too big. I would advise, as always, like we do here, is that people try to continue learning, continue investing in themselves. And really, the way that the world is moving, what most people will want to do is to move away from infrastructure expertise and move up in the stack, right? And that's, um, you know, the, to be like a spoiler, people that haven't uh, heard our number one podcast, really, that's our top recommendation for DBAs to get more involved with data quality issues, to get more involved with writing good SQL, to get more involved with uh, security procedures to get more involved with anything that is more specific to building and supporting your company's applications and to move away from worrying about whether the backups are running or not, 
right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, I don't want to take us too far down the ra- rabbit hole, but I would call it um, moving up the stack is a good way to look at it. Also, uh, facilitating data enablement, which is a whole pile of different jobs and efforts and policies and and, a ho- and, and more for you to learn and do. And I think that the organization can really recognize a lot of value from any DBA uh, type because you have the skills to moving more into facilitating data enablement throughout the organization. I think the the org really benefits. And yeah, anyway, episode number one, folks, if you want to hear us talk a lot more about that one, let's jump back to topic here. Uh, we mentioned Amazon's RDS as a competitor. How does SQL Azure DB uh, stack up against RDS? So before we had, and, and this is funny because we're going to, I'm, I'm talking a lot about before we had managed instance, but now that we have managed instance, right? Managed instance is truly a, a game changer because it really sets up Azure SQL DB to be a lot stronger in competitive scenarios. Because, and here I go, before we had managed instance, the individual model made it really hard for people that had instances with a lot of databases on prem to migrate to Azure SQL DB, right? And so RDS, even though RDS is really just retail versions of SQL Server with some automation built on them, RDS seemed more attractive to those people because it was an experience with less friction, oddly enough, being in a a provider that is not Microsoft, it was offering an experience with less friction to move from on-prem SQL to a managed SQL, right? So a lot of people actually took that route and went into RDS because RDS, like I said, is just on-prem SQL Server with automation built on top of it. So that was kind of like their advantage. Now that managed instance is coming out to Azure SQL DB, that advantage is really gonna move away. And if you are just looking for a place to have SQL Server as a service, Azure SQL DB is going to be the place to be. I think you know RDS's advantages on its own will just go away. If you obviously, if you already have a heavy investment in AWS, you're probably not going to have your databases in one cloud and the rest of your IT assets in another cloud. So, you know, you're still going to select RDS. But if we were to evaluate both services based purely on their technical merits, once managed instance is out on GA, I don't think RDS is going to have any more advantages over Azure SQL DB as a service. And the reason is because even when they have parity in terms of, uh, let's say, automation, and in terms of, yeah, we support the concept of the instance now, Microsoft owns both code stacks, right? They own the database and they own the cloud provider. So they can continuously implement integrations, they can continuously improve the service, and they do still today where you, you know, sometimes it's just a blog post shows up and says, hey, we just enabled this new feature like they did a few weeks ago. We'll probably talk a little bit about it, about the new information assessment feature in your database. You just have to click here and suddenly we're going to analyze and give you some recommendations on security. It's part of the service. You're not paying more. Like, why would you want to opt out of having more features? If you're really invested into SQL Server as a product, why would you not want to have like all these goodies thrown your way, right? Right. Well, and so let's let's change gears now and let's talk about some of the features that uh, you were really excited about. So why don't you start there with the uh, information? Feature. So there's a, there's a lot of new stuff that's happened this year. So for example, the drive to have feature parity 
across different versions of SQL Server has continued. So for example, column store indexes became a SQL Server standard feature with the release of SQL 2016 Service Pack 1. And now it's also available in Azure SQL DB standard, right? So this is something that I think is a great move by Microsoft in general, especially when you compare it to other big vendor database products, so basically Oracle. The fact that Microsoft is really trying to drive down feature parity to all of their different levels of their database engine is, I think it's a big deal, right? That's how you get clients to upsell and invest in your platform, right? Because a client can come in and they use standard edition if they're on-prem or they use standard SQL DB if they're in the cloud. And then they start to use column store and they like it, they get good results. And once their database instance has grown, then it's just natural. They'll say like, well, I need more cores now. I need more memory. Like the upsell is just natural, right? Whereas the other way where it's just like, oh, uh, let's say you want column stores, well, then you're going to have to license specifically for it. And guess what? It's five times the cost of what you're paying for right now. Well, I don't know if column stores, I'm not convinced they're like the right thing for me. You're asking me to just, you know, put a lot of money up front just to try out a new feature, right? So not a lot of people will, will take that that bet. But if you're saying, I get all the features now and I just have to put up more money once I outgrow my current capacity, then I think that's I think that's really the way to go. And it's it lends itself a lot more to the cloud, right? Just think of capacity. Don't think about features when you're moving from one level to the other. Right. Uh, so that's one big deal, yeah, for sure. And you mentioned Column Store there. Column Store, I believe, has now shown up in Standard Edition? Yeah, Column Store is now in Standard Edition of SQL and in Standard Tier of Azure SQL DB, right? Okay, and Column Store is basically, it's for big analytical queries. If you're not experienced the speed of Column Store for scanning large amounts of data, it's, it's quite an eye-opener when you try it out. So if anybody's listening here and they haven't tried it and your use cases are big append-only queries that scan a lot of data, you probably want to look into column stores as well. Okay. And what about uh, the vCore purchasing model? So that's a big change that's coming up now. We're going to have two models for provisioning resources in Azure SQL DB. So initially, we had that concept of the database transaction units. So that's, a, I would say, a, a hardware agnostic concept. So you don't know how many cores you're getting. You don't know the memory that you're getting or whatnot. You only have to worry about the performance that you're getting based on this unit concept. Now, while that unit concept is very, I, I think it's very useful in terms of, you know, letting the provider change the hardware and not having to worry about what the contract that you have with your users, let's say. It kind of gets a little bit trickier when you're migrating from on-prem because on-prem people know how many cores they have, right? And then they're like, well, how many cores is this the equivalent? And then we don't know really because there's no published guidance that says, you know, this amount of DTUs amount to this amount of, of cores, right? So we are moving to another model. So for the, at least for now, Microsoft has said both models are going to coexist. We don't know in the future what's going to happen, but for now, both models will coexist and you can stay in the DTU model where the hardware is abstracted and it's very transparent to you or you can go into a model where you actually select the virtual cores. And then there's a set amount of memory that is going to be provided per core. And there's also a set amount of IOPS that is going to be provided 
as you go up in your level of course as well, right? So this is, I don't know if it's good or bad at this moment. I think we're going to have to see how it plays out out in the market. I can see people do want to have that very familiar experience that they're used to on-prem where they like create a VM and they pick their cores and their RAM and whatnot. But at the same time, I find that I really want to move to a future where all these past services don't have to depend on you know hardware concepts, right? It seems kind of natural that if you provision a database, there's gotta be some sort of throughput measurement that will represent what you get out of your database, right? Because we're talking about things that are as a service. Why do I have to worry about IOPS, right? It seems to me very backwards to suddenly tell a developer, now you have to worry about IOPS. But I can also see how this is easier in terms of facilitating migrations from on-premises because right. people do have those numbers from on-prem and they're just going to want to bring them over. Plus, Microsoft is introducing the benefit where you can take your course from on-prem that you already paid for and you're going to be able to bring them to the cloud. So it covers the cost of your, let's say, cloud license. So that's going to be a big deal for a lot of people, of course. Right. And I want this, I'm going to take a moment to plug the excellent article that uh, Pythian's own Murillo Miranda wrote over at Simple Talk about choosing both the right service tier as well as a, a explanation of DTUs and cost. It's a couple of years old now, but it's still an excellent article if you want to get a little bit deeper. So, Werner, what about availability uh, options? There was some stuff you were really excited about when we were talking before the show. Uh, do you want to go into that? Yeah, absolutely. So the big deal here in terms of availability is that for people that are not familiar with how Azure's high availability has worked for all these years, is that basically what we've always had is a type of, uh, let's say, infrastructure HA, but inside a single data center. And Microsoft has pushed really hard for people to just use disaster recovery capabilities if they wanted more than one data center to be in play. Now, Microsoft over the last year has been enabling availability zones. So similar to what AWS has, if you're not familiar with the concept of availability zones, it's basically data centers that belong to the same region, but they are far enough from each other that, you know, if let's say one were to have a catastrophic loss of power or some sort of, let's say, bad isolated weather incident or something like that, they are far enough at least so that they will be able to function, right? If it's something like a big weather, let's say, uh, incident, then most likely the data centers in a single region could be impacted, and that's where disaster recovery would kick in, right? But what this means for Azure SQL DB is that now we're going to have possibly up to three levels of reliability. So if you are that client where you really want to have the most highly available database as a service thing in the cloud that you can get right now, you're going to be able to get it with Azure SQL DB. So for example, for a premium Azure SQL DB, you are going to have multiple copies replicated in single data center as using Azure's own HA. And this is done with uh, what Azure calls availability sets. So all the copies are on independent racks and stuff like that. And then on top of that, now they're enabling HA to availability zones for those premium databases. So you're going to have also cross data center, single region replication for those databases. And on top of that, we already had disaster recovery geo replication. So if you want everything, you're going to have multiple redundant single data center, cross data center, single region HA through availability zones. 
and disaster recovery that we already had through geo-replication, right? It doesn't get, I mean, it doesn't get more reliable than that. Of course, if you want all that, you have to pay more, right? But I mean, there's no free lunch. Now, if you compare to Azure, uh, not sorry, not Azure, if you compare to what you get with RDS, it's also attractive in the sense that in RDS, Amazon provides one-click HA through different availability zones. But if you want to have disaster recovery, you have to provision another RDS instance in another region, and then you have to have the database migration service running to replicate changes from one to the other. And then obviously you pay for all these other pieces individually. So you can still do it in RDS, but it's a little bit more involved. Whereas in Azure, you get those capabilities, literally, you know, full DR cross region capabilities, you get them with like one click, right? You pick a region, you press save, and you're off to the races. So right. I think in this in this sense, Azure is really, really going to be really changing the game here into what is offered in terms of availability for a cloud database. Right. Right. And folks, if you're thinking like, why would I need this and who needs this? I was at, uh, I can't remember if it was at uh, Microsoft's Inspire or the uh, SQL Pass uh, conference, but a mobile app uh, developer uh, was talking about their successes with SQL DB and they were using it as a backend for a very popular uh, game accessible and playable on um, all mobile devices. And, and uh, Azure was the, the uh, database of choice for them because of these reasons. So let's talk about security. Security is all the rage, as usual, lots of breaches and obviously the Facebook scandal uh, that's going on. Are there any new security features you want to talk yeah, about? Yeah, you, you forgot to say GDPR because we can't go more than 45 minutes without saying GDPR, <laughs> right? So security-wise, they have done a big push. I feel like over the last two years, Microsoft has done a lot to enable new security features. And... Well, they're just continuing right now. And because GDPR is coming into effect in the next couple of months, they're pushing even harder, right? Because I think what they want is also for clients to not get scared and suddenly think that in order to control or be GDPR compliant and whatnot, they have to move back into their own infrastructure, which, by the way, you don't. So they're really, really pushed on it. So, for example, SQL 2016 and 2017, in terms of security releases, we had the introduction of row-level security. We had the introduction of dynamic data masking. We had the introduction of always encrypted. Now, just recently, for example, Microsoft enabled through the portal the SQL vulnerability assessment. And this is kind of like, you probably remember this, Chris. I don't know if, if the listeners have been working with SQL Server for a while. We used to have a security best practices advisor that Microsoft has kind of like abandoned over the years, and they haven't really done a lot of work to it. So now I think they're picking it back up. It's just that they're exposing it, at least for Azure SQL DB, they're exposing it through the Azure portal. So you can get a report, basically, if you have, let's say, users that seem too overpowered, or if you have some fields that Microsoft thinks are sensitive that maybe you should encrypt and so on, they're enabling all these capabilities right there on the Azure portal. On top of this, in terms of just reporting, they're also enabling what they call an info assessment tool. And what this does is that you not only discover these fields, but you can also classify them. So it helps you for your own documentation and for your own, let's say, auditing, because it builds kind of like a data catalog. And you can say these columns here are sensitive. And then the service knows that they're sensitive. And then you can retrieve that information back, right? So you could report on it and say like, 
what databases in the cloud do I have that have sensitive columns, right? And, and you could build, like I said, you could build reports out of that. And then the other interesting thing is that obviously they're using the power of the cloud compute and also another hot, hot buzzword in IT these days, AI, to push that a little bit farther. So Microsoft has a service called threat detection. So what they're gonna do is that once they know what columns, you verify what columns are sensitive, if they see some suspicious activity on those columns, they, they can all also alert you over that, right? So that the service can be tweaked or tuned so that it's a little bit more sensitive to operations that are involved with columns that have sensitive data, right? Okay, that sounds really cool and very handy. So let's talk about what the future of of SQL DB. What does the upcoming kind of next generation, next year look like? So I think number one, the biggest thing right now is going to be the GA of managed instance, right? Like I mentioned before, managed instance right now is public preview, but since it's now public preview, GA cannot be that far. I would assume you know a few months, and then GA is going to be here. So GA is going to GA of managed instance is going to be the next big event. Other than that, I'm going to guess that the team is going to continue pushing the boundaries of size as to what is supported in Azure SQL. Right now, the limit I believe is about four terabytes. And as they try to provide database as a service offering to bigger and larger clients, I would be expecting that this limit is going to continue to be pushed into bigger and bigger databases, right? Because okay. um, they probably don't want to be left behind with people having a choice of, oh, I have to go to SQL Server, not manage, just because I have a big database, right? That's a good point. But what about something cooler than limitations? What about like adaptive query processing or auto-tuning or self-healing and, and that sort of thing? What does that look like? Yeah, yeah, that's just another thing where I think there are a lot of their AI research and a lot of this work they're doing on the software learning is going to pay off as well. So we do, Microsoft in, introduced these, let's say, indexing recommendations, for example, they uh, in the cloud, where it learns about which indexes are used and which ones are not, and you can actually just let the service tune the indexes for you. So I would expect some of these automation and intelligent operations to be, these investments to continue and get bigger. For example, adaptive query processing is one that you mentioned where the query optimizer executes some parts of some queries and then learns and from previous executions to generate better execution plans after that. This this area, for sure, they're going to keep investing on. They're going to keep investing on just covering more use cases. I can see a future, for example, where, let's say, for example, right now, a lot of times people have a really bad query that performs really bad. And people that are really talented T-SQL developers can actually spot, you know, this is not a good way to write the query. And then they provide a rewrite of the query. And some of our most talented guys that clients really admire in our own staff are the guys that can do this, right? They take a query that's written in a way and they know how to rewrite it in a way where it's going to perform better and sometimes not even perform better, but also sometimes they might even read better just for, for understandability. So I can see a future where this is also handled through software, where you see a really bad query and under the covers is if there's a better way to present it to the query optimizer, but still keeping it as an equivalent result set, 
that will just have a service that does that, you know, or a feature that does that. And SQL itself will just do it under the covers for you and you'll just get the benefits out of it, right? Do you think that the engine's going to be now, the database engines have been making index recommendations based on workloads for years. Do you see a point where it's going to start recommending schema adjustments? That's interesting. I guess it could be as we go further down this rabbit hole of automation. I think that's very complex to do because a lot of schema decisions are not done necessarily also because of just purely based on workload, but they might be done because of something else, right? They might be done because it was a design choice at the very early beginning, and then it's hard to, let's say, refactor an application. And then a service that is only looking at the current workload can't, let's say, appreciate the effort of refactoring the application. So while for, you know, let's say an automated recommendation service, it might look like really obvious that you should just like merge these two tables into one from an application point of view, merging these two tables into one could mean hundreds of man hours of testing that has to be done, right? So that, as cool as it sounds, I find that that's going to be a lot trickier to implement than just things that are purely performance impacting, right? As opposed to, oh, I, I think this schema will be smarter for you for this for this particular reason. There's just so many factors that you would have to take into account. And that's where, you know, we, I mean, I think you and I agree that that's where really the human side of software development is not going away that soon, right? Because it's really hard to just automate all these design decisions and design criteria and make the best choice out of them. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, we do agree on that, but I, I don't know. AI, I've been looking into AI quite a bit and it's, you know, once Microsoft uh, or any vendor, it could be any, it doesn't, we don't have to pick on them. Once they have your data, once they have the workloads, they're tracking that, you know, it's conceivable that an AI can spin up another non-public version of that database and through machine learning analysis of the, the workload, then suggest, you know, possibly make other suggestions, test them and then suggest them back to you. But certainly that's probably pretty creepy to some people, but I don't know how far away we really are from that sort of thing. Yeah, it might be creepy, but then I find that humans can put up with the, you know, they, they will get over it if it gives them a benefit, right? Yeah. So yeah. If, if it truly works and you'll get better performance, better documentation, and so on, a lot of people will be okay with letting the providers can and understand their entire model and let's say even their entire application if it truly provides a tangible benefit in the end. Yeah. But I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, but you you raise a really good point that I do want to end on in terms of schema design. Like it's not just about performance. Sometimes it's about organization. Sometimes it's about uh, business logic, and sometimes it's it's often about us understanding the connections between the data entities and columns and and everything that's out out there. And I, I it can be easy to lose that 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 is part of the schema design. Um, all that said, what are some learning resources that you would recommend to our listeners if they're not already messing with uh, Azure SQL DB or managed instances? Where should they look? So definitely the Microsoft Virtual Academy has a lot of stuff on both services. Uh, Pluralsight has a bunch of stuff as well. Our blog, our Pythian blog, is definitely has a lot of material as well on, on cloud uh, and Azure SQL DB. The number one thing, of course, is for you to just try it out, get your Azure SQL subscription, and just play with the service. 
the basic Azure SQL database, I believe is like $5 a month. So if you really just want to get up and running and see how easy it is to, let's say, geo-replicate something or how easy it is to back up and restore for it, how easy it is to scale it up or down, the low end of standard DB is also just like, I don't know, like 20 bucks a month. And that's if you run it continuously, right? You play around with it in the morning, just destroy it and that's it, right? You don't have to leave it up and running. It's really, really low cost to just get up, try it and get a feel for it. And really that's the best way to learn anyway, right? So that's my number one recommendation. So if you still are just waiting, also if you're just waiting for your employer to jump on the cloud before you start learning cloud, you're you're waiting too long. You should just be doing that on your own time. I mean, I know we all have very busy lives, but again, if you are listening to this podcast, I assume that you're very interested in your career already. So if you're not doing that already, I recommend that you you do. Just jump on the cloud on your own. Great point. Now, if people want to get started with that and just jump in, are there any sample databases that you would recommend that people can use? Because you need a database, right? And it's more fun with just, you know, my sample with one table. Are there any samples that you recommend? Yeah, well, the portal already has the adventure work sample. So if you are okay with that, then it's not terrible. I mean, it's just, it's good enough to uh, write some queries. If you want to test out integration to other services, like let's say to analysis services or let's say to Power BI, it's serviceable, right? The, the schema is complex enough to use it. If not, you can always look at the new sample DB, the worldwide importers that Microsoft created for SQL 2016. That one is a little bit even more interesting because if you're using, let's say, standard tier, you can enable some column stores uh, stuff on it as well, right? So then those two are, are sample databases provided by Microsoft. So you're going to find a lot of examples online that use them as well. Okay, great. Thank you, Werner. That's all the time we have for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is to help others find us, and that's by letting them know or writing a short, honest review on iTunes. As always, we love your feedback. You can email me directly at presley at pythian.com. Have a great day in the datascape. Navigating the datascape.